that's exactly what it was. Like you're acting a particular way for one reason, people see it in the other. And in neither of those spaces is the real me. Welcome to Working Your Way, a podcast dedicated to unraveling the journey of being authentic in the workplace. My guest today is Natasha Oliveras Figueroa. She's a creative director at a major ad agency, a proud Puerto Rican, the mother to an adorable little human who you might just hear using her own voice in this episode, and a very dear friend of mine. In this episode, we talk about being silenced versus speaking up. We discuss what empathetic leadership really looks like, and we get into so much more good stuff. Thank you for joining us in this candid conversation. All right, welcome to the Working Your Way podcast, Natasha. I'm really excited to have you on. I'm so excited to be here and talk to you. Talking to you is my favorite. Oh, it's my favorite too. Uh, I just love that I get to be in company in my life with such badass people in general. And so we're going to talk about your badassery. But first, uh, I want to talk a little bit about early in your career when there were times where you felt like you couldn't be yourself at work. Early on in my career, it's, you know, a lot of it is going to sound unfortunately familiar, I want to say. So I might try to like breeze past it because unfortunately, I feel like so many people share in this, which is that I couldn't be fully myself at work or show up how I thought I wanted to because of what I looked like, you know, like being a woman, a Hispanic woman, and obviously back then being probably one of the youngest people in the room came with a lot of, or it felt it came with a lot of things that, um, sort of stopped me from being myself, whether there was nobody else in the room that looked like me. So I didn't feel safe or something that was all too common in the like mid 2000s, which is just people saying kind of unacceptable things to you, but they were acceptable at the time. So things that would be really silencing. And it was hard not to internalize all of that and then sort of wrap it up in the only assumption that I could make out of that, which was when you are yourself at work, that's not going to go well for you. Yeah. And so you formed this mentality of if I actually do show up, if I say the things I want to say, like something bad is going to happen. Did you get feedback along the way? Like what were some of the things that reinforced that for you? I think it was hearing feedback um, and sort of live feedback. But what the feedback lacked, what I can I look back on now is that it lacked sort of context and nuance. So I'm remembering they're all like sort of coming back to me, but I'm remembering specific moments where um, I was given feedback by a male, older male creative director who was my boss, who brought me into a brainstorming session with like the VP male creative director. And these are like two older men and I'm 22. And they just kind of wanted me to sit in there and brainstorm with them, completely negating the power dynamics and um, sort of the pressure that that would put on a junior creative. I appreciate that they invited me into that space, but it was hard to speak up. So I received the feedback of, you know, I wasn't speaking up. I wasn't talking. 
kind of my creative director wanted me to be putting on a little bit of a show and I didn't. But I think that type of feedback lacked the context of why I wasn't speaking up, why I was sort of acting out of norm, if you will. And then I've received a lot of feedback all around coded language around how passionate I am, how decisive I am, how strong I come across and how that can be intimidating for people. And I don't believe that that feedback had anything to do with anything else other than my demographic, if you will. I didn't see that feedback being applied to my white male counterparts who were indeed extremely loud and vocal and interruptive and scary sometimes. I wonder if like that moment in the brainstorming session, is there some element of like, you know, these, these, you know, powerful within the hierarchy men, they're like, we invited you into this room and you're not saying anything. They were like completely lacking that, like you said, the context of the power dynamic in the room. And they had seen you in other contexts as like, oh, well, she's confident. She'll say what she means and, and, and come up with the ideas. And so this like dissonance or the like ignoring of the, the dynamics in that made them kind of respond in a very different way. I think it's yep. something that's like the <clears throat> your internal experience of something versus how other people experience you in that moment. Yeah, which is, that's funny that you say that because that is something that I um, employ in my day-to-day life in my marriage, <laughs> not at work though. But yeah, that's exactly what it was. Like you're acting a particular way for one reason, people see it in the other. And in neither of those spaces is the real me. Yeah. And what were some of those earlier experiences like where you did speak out and you did say the thing and people were like, ooh, yeah, no, we don't we don't want all of that from you. Oh, God, how long do we have? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's kind of been um, pretty common in my career um, and in my life, really, and like my growing up sort of journey, whether it's personal or professional. But I have had a lot of moments where um, I will, I guess, an example of like when I spoke up, right, and it was not well reserved or well received. I one of the first times that I actually stood up for myself, I remember I was in my very first job. I was about 23, 24 years old, and I was sent on a massive shoot for several TV spots. And I had written a lot of them, as was my job, but managing a shoot and going with producers and all that, not my job. I'm glad I did it. And I was great at it, by the way, but not my job. And then the aftermath of that, after all the shoots and all that, of course, there are things that this little 23-year-old had no idea she was supposed to account for. And those things kind of came knocking at the door. No big deal. More so like I didn't save my receipts <laughs> to expense things. I went over one of the record budgets because my producer just kind of didn't give me a limit. All of these things, then I, I'm getting sort of faulted for them in the office. And I sort of spoke up for myself and I said, well, that's kind of the producer's job to to give me all this information and to make sure that I do X, Y, and Z. And this was an older male producer. It's kind of a theme here. And he got so angry and he raised his voice at me and my creative director saying that he wasn't there to babysit me and that I wasn't his child. I wasn't his problem. And I just felt this voice coming out of me that just said, then you don't understand your job description. And that was 
All hell broke loose. My boss asked me to leave the room. I could hear them arguing and it was not well received. And I still got even more dinged because I said that. But behind the scenes, my boss was telling me that was awesome. You were right. But for some reason, the facade that had to be put up was what I did was really wrong. And I felt a lot of shame and a lot of fear that I was going to lose my job. But I also felt like I had this little like, you know, like swagger to me walking out of the building that day. And I look back and I'm like, so proud of that moment for speaking up. Yeah. Like how can someone penalize you for something that you never knew that they never told you or trained you or set you up for success in a situation. Uh, And I love what you said about like equal parts, like, oh shit, I think I'm going to lose my job. And like, yeah, heck yeah. I stood up for myself. Mm -hmm. I can see you walking up. (laughs) That's the norm I feel of being authentic at work. I think it's, you're straddling this line of, well, sometimes you're straddling this line of, oh shit, that I say or do something that's going to get me in trouble. And no, I stand by what I said or I stand by what I did. And I know that at least through my filters, I'm right. I, that, that actually hasn't stopped to this day, really. It's just less fear of the former, if you will. What Natasha just said here is huge. She talks about the norm of being authentic at work means straddling the line of doing what I know is right and what's true to me and putting something on the line here to do it. Your job standing, your reputation, your image. This trade-off is taking a risk in your external security or betraying yourself. That choice is enormous. And this idea of authenticity being a risk, I think it's something that is exponentially more true for you the farther your identity is from the one that's centered in the workplace. So I wonder, when did you learn that being yourself at work wasn't safe? One of the things that I know about you is that you are like a fiercely protective team leader For your people, you're empathetic, you hear them out, they feel seen, they feel understood, and you're going to kind of provide that protective bubble over them. And so I can imagine that that kind of duality of experience comes up a lot with that too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, I might be sort of overcompensating for what I didn't have and how I bring that into my leadership for sure. I want to give room for the people that I manage and lead and I'm responsible for. I want to give them room to be authentic and sort of navigate what it is that that means to them. Some people are lucky enough that they show up into the workforce completely unafraid of their authenticity. Some people need time there. Some people are in between. So trying to remove layers and filters of being afraid of being authentic and helping them flex what authenticity means to them is something that I pride myself in being good at because of having had all these past experiences where I could not be, which was the majority, and then some shining moments where I could. Yeah. And so you're providing them that thing that you didn't have when you were early in your career. Which is like a safe space, essentially. And like, 
they'll say some shit to me sometimes. <laughs> but I know that at the end of the day, there's a mutual respect there. And we we can collaborate on a lot. And I like that they can say some sideways shit to me sometimes because I know they'll rein it back if needed. Were there moments where kind of you just, you were able to sense what people expected of you? I mean, I know this constant kind of navigation of like, I feel this way. I want to say the thing. Should I say the thing? Can I say the thing? Like, how were you thinking about other people's expectations? Um, I think inherently because of my job that has, that is like the top 10% of things that accumulate in my brain. That is one of them because when I'm presenting work, for example, when I'm walking a client through some sort of new business pitch or everyday work that they pay us a lot of money for, I have the expectations of what my client, what I know they want to hear. I have the expectations of some, you know, sideways remark that the EVP of the account said in passing when he said they love to hear this. So I have that in my mind. And then it's very common to have, you know, peers or directors messaging you while you are doing all these things, forcing these expectations on you. So you have to kind of put on a show and sort of check the box of everybody's spoken or unspoken expectations. And then when I made the transition into being a leader within my company, my company at the time, I'm still a leader in the industry. It's you feel the weight of the world in expectations that they have of you now that you not only are individual contributor, but you are a manager of people. Hence, you are a representative of the company. So expectations are (laughs) all that's there. How do you think about showing up authentically internally within your agency versus with the client? Like how how has that shifted over time? I mean, I'm still struggling with. Uh, the client side of my authenticity, for sure. And it's because I think that even in leadership spaces, you know that you are like in service to something bigger. And I mean that in the capitalist way, not in the altruistic way. Um, So you are expected, you know, you're providing a service, even if it's a corporate one, you're providing a service. So it's just, you know, on a way different way. It's kind of like when, you know, you're working at a restaurant and somebody is expecting a certain level of treatment and product output. So it took me a while to be fully authentic in the workplace. And that journey started getting better when I became a leader, little by little, because you start seeing that the things that you have done, the ways that you have operated do work, and that what you bring to the table is accepted. So you start getting, at least I started getting braver and braver. And I am, I can say that I am probably like 90% my authentic self at work. That other 10%, I think is a very healthy thing to keep back, if not more, (laughs) just because of, you know, you want to be professional. They don't need to know everything about me. And let's not get, you know, forget the added layers of code switching, which I think is another podcast in and of itself. So yeah, a good 90% of me is authentic in front of the CEO, just like in front of the intern. And it's liberating and it makes me, it empowers me to do my best work. What Natasha brings up here is a good point. She's talking about being 90% herself at work and kind of holding that 10% back in service of being professional. And I think this decision or this balance looks different for everybody. 
it's such a complex part of this discussion around authenticity is what is being myself at work? What things do I leave behind or leave at home? Um, How do I assimilate to a corporate structure, an environment, a culture, but I'm not conforming to it? And so uh, in episode two, Takesha mentioned something about you know, when she was at work and she'd be watching a lot of BET or Martin or things like that on TV. But when she went to work, people were talking about MTV. And so she would talk about those things. And I think that's one of those things where, again, it's a personal decision of saying, do I need to talk about what I do outside of work at work? Is that part of me being authentic? Is it important for me? And I think it's very different to say, okay, fine, I'm just not going to talk about my favorite TV shows at work because people just don't relate versus this part of me outside of work, like being a mother is something that I'm being asked to leave behind and pretend that it doesn't exist. And that's a very different kind of leave behind, if you will. And so 90%, 95%, 85%, 75%, whatever your percent looks like, it's determining what is that healthy balance for you And what are the parts of you that are really intrinsically connected to your identity? There's been a lot of conversation around the Crown Act, which is protecting people in wearing their natural hairstyles at work. And that is, I would say, something that's critical to someone's identity is the way that your hair naturally grows out of your head of course, that should be something that's accepted at work and not something that's left behind at home or um, conformed to a certain standard of beauty around. So all of this to say, it's, it's really about kind of tuning into yourself and thinking about, okay, if I can't talk about this one aspect of myself at work, do I feel like I'm betraying myself? Do I feel like it's going to feel like an energetic drain to hold that thing back or do a lot of extra labor to cover that thing up. And I don't necessarily think anybody's going to walk around being 100% themselves all the time. I mean, we wake up and we put on certain clothes for different occasions. And, you know, I wear makeup, even though I don't necessarily feel like I have to do that It's something that I do to feel more comfortable in the world. And so thinking about those things for yourself, maybe using this filter of identity as, is this a critical part of me that I have to exclude? Or is this just something that, yeah, in this environment, people aren't going to relate? Just like if you go to a party and people don't know about a certain thing that you're an expert on. Are you going to spend a lot of time talking about it? In front of the clients, it's still a different story just because it feels like the stakes are so high. And everybody that I work with is putting on the same effort to act as something else for our clients that it's hard to dig into authenticity, even when you're trying to mimic, you know, the leaders of the company. My hope is that, which is something that I'm currently working on, is that I can keep getting enough FaceTime with them and have one-on-ones with them so that I can start to understand who they are as just people, not as clients. And then I can start being a bit more of myself. Yeah. I mean, and that goes back to like 
theories around building trust, right? And and when you know someone is a human, you can have a little more empathy for them. They can have a little more empathy for you. You get a little more range of of how you show up. Exactly. Exactly. Because you, you know, there's always a level of when you're being your authentic self, there has to be a level of you saying, I don't care how this is perceived, right? You're just kind of, I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to act how my instincts tell me or lead how my instincts tell me and my experience and all that. Um, There has to be a level of don't give a fuck. But when it comes to clients, it's kind of nearly impossible to have that filter still. Yeah. What's one of the, like, what are some of the ways that you see kind of navigating, like, I, I want to protect my team. I want to make sure that I'm that person who can advocate for their well-being and for them to do their best work and client expectations, because in any service-based industry, it's like you're beholden to what the client asks you to do. Like, I know that that's probably something you're still navigating daily. What have you learned? What is working for you? You mean like holding space for my team to be sort of their authentic selves and be human at work while balancing that with client expectations, right? And those two might not always align. Yeah. And even like, we need something tomorrow and Mm -hmm. that would require you to ask more from people when they need rest and they need time off. Mm -hmm. Um. There's so many ways to come at this, right? And so many terrible ways that I've seen and great ways that I've seen and everything in between. My personal approach varies uh, situation by situation. And this is actually super common in advertising. If anybody has ever worked in advertising, it's always just a five alarm fire. I think that, like I said, case by case dependent, I try to make the least amount of work and pain for my team. So I was recently in the position where my team was so overextended and me and my co-lead partner were trying to do as much as possible to alleviate. And um, because they were overextended, it was starting to show in the work, right? I was not getting the best work from them. And instead of calling that out and instead of giving them that type of feedback, because I knew that they were already over. I mean, it's a team of 15 people and everybody was working about 70 hours a week. So there's no room for more. And instead of calling that out in that moment, I just did it because I knew I could also. It took me two hours. After hours, I put a whole presentation together. It went swimmingly. It's wonderful. It's actually out in the world right now. I knew that would take that I could do that quickly. And I saved them a full night of additional work, right? There's also been times where I give them all of my expectations and I say, I know this is trash. This is why this is important. And I sort of will give them more information that they usually get and they'll cooperate with me. I've noticed that over communication and mutual respect go a very long way. And I've also had them where I tell them what's happening. I explain to them why I am, quote unquote, taking their work, because usually that's a, you know, a penalty, but I'm just trying to help. And a lot of the times when that happens, they'll say, I got it. I'll do it. I think a lot of that comes from the fact that they have seen that I show them respect, that they have seen that I go to bat for them, that I am militantly opposed to weekend work, that I am militantly opposed to reaching out to someone unless their little green, their bubble is green on teams. So I think that having laid the groundwork for that helps me taking on some of the work helps. It's all kind of situation dependent. Yeah, but you have this basket of tools and you can kind of basket reach of tools, into there and yes. figure it out. 
that I don't have to like my last tool in that in that basket is screwing someone over or sacrificing someone's time. It has to come into play sometimes, right? Um, but I think with transparency and empathy, you're fine. I I love that there's a couple of things you said in there that I think are frankly great lessons for for all leaders is like the over communication and the mutual respect. It's like I actually had a client um, recently that was talking about he had been putting off and putting off and putting off assigning certain this certain bucket of work to his team because he knew they were really busy and it was going to be a lot of data that they needed to pull. And so he was like, so I've just been like punting basically instead of like having the difficult conversation. And we mm-hmm. had that moment of like, bad news doesn't get better with time. And how can you actually just enroll them in the conversation to be like, I know where you are. I know that this sucks. Like you said, it, this is trash and it needs to get done. So like, can we figure this out together? Like, what would right. you like to see happen here? And I can take this, but again, over communicating that to say, I'm going to do this presentation versus them waiting and wondering and thinking like, oh my God, Natasha didn't have me work mm-hmm. on that. Like, maybe she doesn't think my work is good or maybe I'm going to get fired. You know, it's just like, just say the words, you know? Right. Right. And so many leaders think that the best approach is to shield people from information. I, I cannot subscribe to that. And whenever I've been new on a team or whenever I've hired new people onto my team, one of the first things that I tell them is I'm an over communicator. I will always tell you more than you need. And if you ever want me to stop, tell me absolutely tell me. Um, And then I always end up saying even more than I should. Um, (laughs) But that's not, that's not common. And I thought it would be, but leaders are very much about shielding people from information. Like they don't need to know that that's going to upset someone or that's going to confuse people. It's like, how about we just trust that they are professionals and that they know what they're doing because we hired them and then let people take information as, you know, however they want. I'd rather know everything and then decide it's not in my business or know everything knowing that it's none of my business, but at least I have some context and some background. I've never had that backfire on me. I've had it backfire where I don't communicate with my team and they don't have all the information. Yeah. Yeah. People will fill in the blanks if they don't hear it from you. And so exactly that doesn't end well for anyone, (laughs) especially for the manager. (laughs) essentially, because yeah. <laughs> then you have people going rogue. Yeah, I I think that's, um, I think that's a great lesson. And it, it is like building trust with people. But also, like you said, like, give them the respect to say, like, we're gonna all be in this together. I'm going to treat you like an adult, I'm going to tell you all the things. And then you can tell me what you what, where you want to go from here. So exactly. Just Amazing. trust people. Yeah. What Natasha shares here is a really beautiful example of how she's leading the team with mutual respect. And I would say largely, if you're a leader, you're not going to sit here and say like, oh, I don't have that. I don't respect my team. But the way that she's using it is saying, hey, I'm going to respect that my team, they're full-grown adults. They can make their own decisions. They will want to have some agency in what is going on? And so there's two places that I see this maybe not happening when the leader's intentions are to respect the team. But 
One of them, it would be if there are some things going on in the company that you may be privy to certain information that's going to impact your team, but you're not allowed to talk about it yet. Or there's certain projects that might impact what they're doing. And so a lot of times we might like dance around this kind of secrecy. And what I'm not saying is tell them the things you're not supposed to tell them. But just by naming that, hey, there's something else going on that you don't have the context for yet. And so I'm asking you to trust me that I'm telling you the right thing to do and know that I'm going to bring you, you know, behind the curtain whenever I can. Even just naming those things, I think a lot of times people get worried that if they say there's something that you don't know, that people will worry about that thing. But oftentimes they're going to worry about that thing more if they don't know or if they think something's being held from them. And so the, you know, just treating them with respect to say, I have enough respect and trust for you to let you know this. And I hope that you have enough respect and trust for me to know that I've got your back and I'm working on it and I'll let you know when you need to know. Because oftentimes people will fill in the blanks themselves. The other one is something that she brought up around. Sometimes the demands of the job are just that. They're they're gonna ask people to stay late or work on a weekend or um, do something that you've said as a team, hey, this doesn't align with the way that we want to create balance in the work that we do. And oftentimes leaders will say, oh my gosh, now there's this problem. I'm the bad guy. And it's me needing to get this work done for the company against my team who really wants balance and to be treated well. And what you can do in this situation is think about it as, how do I get on the same side of the problem with the other people? And so instead of you against your people and you, the bad guy, giving this information or making them stay late... How do you come together as a team on the same side of the problem and say, hey, this is what needs to happen. Let's work on creatively figuring out how it happens. Or, hey, this is just the reality of what needs to be done and how can we make it better maybe after it's done and um, you know, trade off some other time where you can cut out early or things like that. So the idea of bringing people behind the curtain with you as a leader, I think, is a really important way to think about treating your people with respect, but also conflict avoidance. Because a lot of times we might hold this information or keep a big project like close to the vest because we know it's going to create a lot of work or swirl or whatever. And if we can find ways to bring ourselves on the same side of the table as our people against the problem, it can really lighten that load and it builds this respect and trust on the team so that you're all in it together. And that actually is usually far more effective in creating a good culture than trying to soften the blow of news or work that just needs to get done anyway. So one of the other things that I really think about, like being yourself at work or being authentic in the workplace or whatever kind of words around that is using your natural talents in the work that you do, because it's, it's this kind of idea of like, we can do a lot of things, but the things that require so much more effort and struggle are the things that burn us out. And so how do you actually use your natural talents in the work that you do? that allows you to kind of like do great work, but not expend as much energy and effort and and struggle. And so 
I have to think that, you know, obviously being a creative director, um, copywriting and getting into the empathy of like uh, understanding other people's experiences makes you great at what you do. So how do you think about like emotions, your connection to emotions, your your natural sense of empathy and and the work that you do? Being a creative person, especially like in advertising, a creative as we call it, it naturally you emotion it's an inherently emotional job. Like you're putting like the creation process can I can only describe it as an emotional process. There's no form or function to it. Obviously, you can teach technique. I am not as talented as those classically trained artists and painters and sculptors and all that. You can teach technique, but like inspiration, where things come from, what moves you is something incredibly emotional. So I think with that, not bringing that into the workplace, whether you're an individual contributor or a manager is a mistake. And I think empathy comes from that because it's emotional. When you know that the work that you do is emotional already and, you know, we face a lot of rejection day in and day out through our ideas getting rejected, those ideas are a little part of us. It doesn't matter that I'm selling gum to teenagers in the East Coast. It's still going to be emotional for me. It's an emotional process. So having been on the receiving end of that, I think that it naturally will breed empathy. There are people that don't, but I think it's common that that'll breed empathy And I think having that empathy on the other side of the coin makes you a better creative because all we do is put ourselves in the shoes of other people that we are not, that need something that we don't, that are going to buy something that we probably wouldn't. So we have to constantly operate from standing in somebody else's shoes. So I think that like going through advertising as a career is, especially as a creative in advertising, is emotional boot camp and sort of a case study and constant rejection for people that are very emotional. And then on the other side of that is also the work that we do. You have to inherently be an empathetic person, inherently be someone that can put themselves in somebody else's shoes. How is like dealing with rejection in the work that you do? How has that changed for you over the course of your career? I mean, that can't be fun. And there's an element of like what you do is part of who you are. It's easy. For me, it's easier now because I've been through it a lot. Um, So you get heartened after a while. But it's easier now because I am not, or at least I'm not supposed to be building the work. I'm helping build the people that build the work. So it's hard to confront failure in that sense because I'm helping others do a better job is always satisfying, always gratifying. And when they don't nail it, like the work that you do together to hit it the next time is still very satisfying. So I don't, um, I don't feel that as much anymore. When you were directly linked to the work, were there times that you, I don't know, had to develop coping mechanisms or practices or things to like kind of help, uh, you know, make that sting a, a little less? Oh, yeah. It's funny because I had this boss, wonderful person. I can name him John Florick. If you're listening, I love you. And John picked up really quickly that I internalized everything. And this is when I was a senior creative, still individual contributor. And he said he gave me a hockey analogy. His name's John. What do you expect? Um, (laughs) 
and he which was immediately said, lost on you but then it then then you figured it out eventually yeah <laughs> well he made it easy for me right um but the analogy is when you are watching a hockey game and um look at the look at the goalies and whenever a point is made look at the goalie that like let that point come through total hockey terms right now right the goalie that let that point come through usually they will do something that's sort of more than standing there they will slap themselves in the head or they'll do something like this or they'll take a lap around the net and he was explaining that that's them resetting to not internalize the quote-unquote mistake that they just made so he was kind of pushing me we had this whole long conversation about find my way to sort of reset after a loss because if i'm producing if my job is to produce ideas all day if they were all getting accepted i i would be a bajillionaire right no, it's rejection all day. So he gave me that really good piece of advice. Never listened to it. Never applied it. Of course I didn't. <laughs> um, but I did keep it in mind. And somehow slowly through the years, it got easier. It's never easy, right? But it got easier. And I think after a certain amount of time, you can take a more objective approach to that. You can sort of remove yourself from the equation and look at your work and look at the feedback given and then decide, like, where did that come from? Is it true? Is this something that I can mold? Is this worth a conversation? Are they totally right and we need to move on? But removing myself from the equation and sort of seeing the work for what it is has helped. Secretly, I internalize every single one of my losses, though. And, and is there anything that you do now to, like, take a lap or, like, shake it off? <laughs> Um, yes, I actually find, um, I would say, find the people that you um, align with professionally, and then just have a good old bitch fest with them, whether it's 30 seconds or 30 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think the, the expression of emotions, right, and the connection is, it's actually doing things internally. So I think that totally makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I'll, so you I'll just, you know, start chatting my partner and be like, can you believe? And she's also a creative, female creative director, too. So she gets it. And we will either just really egg each other on you know, with things that don't need to being petty and stuff. Or, you know, we'll be like, well, did you try this way or that way? Like, it just it helps to have a listening ear, someone that gets it when you can like bitch sideways, as I say. One of the things you were saying as you went through that was like, okay, if an idea gets rejected, it's, okay, what did they say? What can I learn from it? You know, kind of like so the sorting out process of like, what do I want to take from this? And it kind of makes me think about feedback of, about you or about your leadership or about your work or, you know, the, the personal stuff, right? The developmental feedback. And so what has that process been like for you in terms of like sorting out what you want to take with you versus mm -hmm. maybe some stuff you want to leave behind? I'm so happy you asked this because I was in the shower last night and I was like, I hope she asks me about feedback because I have so much <laughs> to say about this. So feedback is a funny thing, especially in my industry. Um, I think everywhere in the corporate world, you probably can attest to this from past lives that um, feedback is considered a gift. And you always hear that talk track. Feedback is a gift. Feedback is a gift. In advertising specifically, feedback is kind of like this cult leader, this like weird cult leader that cannot be questioned. Um, so not applying feedback, 
immediately and visibly and obvious can be just uh, detrimental to your career, unfortunately. Um, and that's always been perceived in advertising. Feedback is, you know, the end all be all. Feedback is Beyonce in advertising. And very recently, I've really shifted my relationship with feedback. And that's because I have received some feedback from a very significant leader that I should listen to, who is arguably in a position that I want to be in in the future. And it was really bad feedback. And it goes against who I am. And um, I don't agree with with any part of it at all. And I actually think that if I apply it, I'm going to set myself back because my authenticity goes right out the window. So I was unpacking that feeling and I was actually talking to my career coach, who is a phenomenal power lady. And she actually kind of released me from that prison. And she said, you don't have to apply feedback. It's a gift. Just because it's a gift, you don't have to accept it. And that really shifted my perception of it because it's how do you want to apply feedback to your journey? If, you know, for example, the feedback that I got was, um, for lack of a fancier term, was, you know, say less, talk less, wait for your turn. Well, see, I'm the director of the account. I'm the creative director of the account. That's not going to happen. I wonder if that feedback would have been given to a male creative director, for example. And me not speaking up when necessary is a detriment to myself, to the work and to my team. But that was a very liberating experience and really kind of mind altering within the industry that I am in and the work that I do that you don't have to listen to feedback if it goes against your own style, what you believe to be true. All that said, you can only do that once you know what your style is, right? And once you have acquired a good bank of your truths, if you will. So I think feedback is a gift. I think consider the source, apply it wherever you think you deem necessary. And if you don't know who you are yet professionally, just apply the whole thing and go from there. Yeah, it, it's a it's a, a bit of a reframe. Um, because again, I heard that a lot in my corporate career too, is feedback is a mm -hmm. gift. And it was implied to be feedback is a gift and you should be grateful for it. Yes. And instead it's like feedback is a gift, and like some people are crappy gift givers. <laughs> like, there you go. You, maybe you want to return in the gift. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or maybe they're giving you a gift based on what the, they like. Yes. Right. Like through their filters, how they respond to things. But that's not how your best self comes out. Maybe that's not how your audience would have received it. That's just a focus group of one. Oh, my gosh. We could go on a whole rant about this. And like advice is perfectly designed for the person who gives it, exactly. not the person that it goes to. And a lot of things are projections. <laughs> exactly. They exact. There's there's different types of feedback for sure. I mean, if I'm giving you a feedback because, you know, Sandhya, maybe watch how many times you say like when you're presenting. Totally get that. That's yes. Apply that now. <laughs> you need to apply that now. <laughs> but if I'm saying, hey, Sandhya, sometimes you like to make jokes during meetings just to like bring some levity and people laugh and that's great. But I don't think this is a place that we should be laughing so much. I don't really need to listen to you unless I was like making fun of someone's toupee. There's no harm, no foul. 
<laughs> exactly. exactly. We're going to go with non-harm humor is has a place in the work. Exactly. <laughs> the as long as it's not about somebody's hair loss, we're good. <laughs> that has particular career limiting aspects to it, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, walking around poking fun at people, we're not going to do it. Unless you were in the early days of advertising when I was. That was totally acceptable and valid if you looked a certain way. Ugh, the old days of advertising. Thankfully, we're past a lot of this, and Natasha and I are going to talk a little bit more about this. But before we move on, I want to talk about feedback. So first and foremost, asking yourself, like, is this feedback asking me to abandon who I am? And if that's the case, absolutely no. I'm not going to take it. Like, do I have a gift receipt? Because I'm taking this back to the store. And Natasha mentioned it as ignoring feedback that goes against who I am. It's fundamentally part of who she is. It's part of the role and her success in the role as the director of an account to give her feedback in a room. So if someone gives her feedback about that feedback and says that she should not share it, that was an instance where she was like, nope, that's fundamentally not aligned with what I need to be doing. Beyond that, I think. Here's what I want to offer. As we talk about authenticity a lot on this podcast, I believe that authenticity is both knowing who you are and also being clear on where you're going. And what this looks like is how do I want to develop? What type of leader or contributor do I want to be? And understanding what that looks like. And then what you could do is ask yourself, is this feedback in service of where I want to go? Or is this feedback somewhere someone else wants me to go or someone, something that they're projecting on me that maybe they don't want to do themselves or something that's just rife with bias and just isn't good feedback. So let's get back to the conversation. How do you think those things that used to be acceptable, like how much has that changed? And what are the things you think are like hangovers from that time? Oof, again, a whole nother entire podcast that we could do about this. Um, I think that so much has changed and so much has stayed the same under a new name. Being sort of create, not being, creating a sort of guy's culture and like this male dominated type of culture, not just in your staffing, but in how you operate culturally, right? Um, that's kind of luckily pretty prehistoric, considered pretty prehistoric. The agency that I work at, there are some smaller teams, there's some giant agency that I work at, but there are some smaller teams that have that reputation. And they are, of course, led by older white male creative directors. Um, so th they are still around. They do still find some success, right? But these people are not being put in any case studies. They're not being highlighted for being change agents. They're not the people that the system puts in front of audiences. Um, so it's not a fireable offense, but it's definitely the exception. Um. I think that anything in in any sort of realm of being sexually harassed or even made to feel uncomfortable is a com like complete shutdown immediately, which 
me 15 years ago starting in this industry was not a thing. I was harassed so much um, with no nowhere to go. Luckily, I've noticed a lot that like racism is finally addressed without it being like, are you sure? Um, and you being questioned. So a lot of those things are different, a lot more women in leadership and all that. And then when I talk about, you know, changes that you change the name or the outfit, but it's still the same thing is that we talk about diversity and inclusion, but diversity has become white women and inclusion does not exist. Really. There are some few places that do that, but inclusion does not exist. The shifting of power dynamics is definitely a thing where you have more access to the C-suite, but it's still the same thing under a different name where once you're in that C-suite or exposed to that C-suite, you're still expected to play a very old school game once you cross that threshold, which isn't great. So a lot of things change. A lot of things are very much the same. I do see more people like me in the levels below me. That might just speak to my age. But I do see a lot more changes in, you know, the younger crowd, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about with you is I firmly believe that so much of our professional development is really like personal work. It's inner work. It's doing our own stuff, right? And I think there's a lot of things that need to happen from an environmental standpoint, right? Like, can you, do you have an inclusive environment to your point? um, Mm. Does inclusion exist? How are you making that happen as a company? But then like how you're showing up to that, building up that solid confidence, like you said, of knowing who you are and um, feeling like, yeah, I'm going to back that. What has the work looked like for you to get to this point? The work both personally and professionally and like how those trying to do this. Yeah, yeah. Or like inner work that you've done that's been really particularly helpful for you to show up confidently as who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that it's it's inevitable that those two things are going to overlap for people. And it just depends, I think, on you, who you are as a person um, for how much that's going to overlap. I am a Capricorn, so it's just one. The Venn diagram is just a circle for me, unfortunately. (laughs) So everything that happens in my professional life translates to my personal and vice versa. So the better that I get in my personal life, the more that I grow in my personal life, the more that I am growing in my professional life. And everything has a domino effect. For example, the CCO of my company said, when I was about to go on maternity leave, he said... When you come back as a parent, you're going to be a better creative director. And he gave me no context to that, just that. And I thought it was more so around time management, maybe, right? Because now you have a baby. What is time? And no, it was more so around um, the way that I communicate, my comfort in being responsible for others and all of that really shifted with having a baby, which is just a glaring example of your personal life changing your professional life. All the learnings that I have learned from my therapist, my personal therapist, so much of that translates into my career, whether I'm talking about my discomfort with a certain type of person in my in my personal life. I start drawing connections to my discomfort with certain things at work. And I have a therapist and I have a career coach, like I mentioned, and sometimes I get the pieces of advice confused for sure. 
I something that is very fresh and recent in my age now. It took me until I'm 38 to get to this place in my life. But um I find a, I am in a place in my life where I just it's the epitome of I don't give a flying fudgesicle about anybody's take on anything <laughs> that I feel. And I stand ten toes in my reality, even if, you know, even if I feel like I am ouch outsmarted or out-educated or anything. I know what I know and I stand on it. And I just realized that in my personal life. And then I looked back, I was doing some meditating and I was like, well, this came from my job. And something that I have worked so hard in my personal life to finally crack and to finally break through didn't happen through personal work. It happened through the work that I was doing for my own career, the growth that I was looking for in my own career. So that, um, it sounds be when it sounded beautiful when I cracked it and realized it. Right now, it's sounding a little bit psychotic, though. I'm just realizing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really, honestly, it really isn't. I I think like the a lot of times it tends to go the other way, where somebody's like, "I'm gonna learn to, you know, uh, express my emotions," or "I'm gonna learn to confront." conflict or things like that. Right. And, and they may be working on that in their personal life and they bring it into work. I think it's really cool that you're like, actually that thing, that breakthrough came from, like, I was able to practice it at work, mm -hmm. build it up at work. And now I can bring it over. Um, exactly. and I think sometimes like doing some of this work in the workplace is the stakes are, lower in a way than like you're in your personal relationships, right? You're not risking right. as much if you want to like work on your like conflict aversion, practice it at work and then bring it home or, you know, those types of things. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, yeah, it, it, it all started because of wanting to be a better professional, a better leader. And my coach gave me this advice. She said, write down like a work mantra, put it at your desk and always remember that whenever you're questioning yourself. And my mantra was, well, I know what I'm good at. Like, I know what I have on lock, right? And then just lean on that. And through that, it just kind of seeped into my personal life. That one and um, from the wonderful Hannah Gadsby, she said... Um, whenever something, you know, you're confronted with anything, she said, what she says in her mind is don't panic. Who do you want to be right now? And that one, I actually never got to apply it to work because I immediately stole it into my personal life. And he has helped me so much. I've actually said it to my husband and it has helped him at times. I've said it to my sister who invented anxiety and it's been really helpful. But both of those things came from a work environment. I think it is totally acceptable <laughs> if you're if you're looking for uh some affirmation that that's okay and awesome i was gonna mm -hmm. say normal and it's not even a normal thing right i think it's a healthy thing yeah. to like pull our growth from wherever wherever it lands and takes root like that's okay that's great right. and then now it gets to I'm going to use a tree analogy, you know, grow branches in other parts of our lives. I don't know. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's been really liberating, too, right? Especially with, like, literally pick anything that's happening in the world right now. Like, there are so many ways to feel silenced. There are so many ways to feel wrong. There are so many ways to um, 
question yourself daily. So I'm very happy that I struck that now, but also like if, if one of those, if I can solve some of those things through learning things from work, sure. I'm having an existential moment. If you can tell. I know, I know. I'm like, I, I truly, I support it. I'm here with it. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll let you go like meditate on this for a little while. <laughs> no, oh God, I'm going to be panic texting you. What did you do? <laughs> you yeah. opened a door. We got to close it. <laughs> yeah. No, but I do think when I really think about it, I think that you said, you know, there's so many higher stakes in your personal life than professional. I think I view it the opposite. Again, maybe not super healthy. But I think that's like Capricorn. (laughs) There you go. Like, don't mess with my money. Right. But I think that showing up to certain rooms with certain that only certain titles can walk into that room and showing up into those rooms and starting to just say what I want and speak how I want and sort of live by that mantra of I know what I'm good at. I know what I know and I know it the best. That to me is the highest stakes, right? Because you could speak out of turn and upset the wrong person. And now you're sitting in a different kind of room that you don't want to be in, or you're having a conversation you don't want to be having. So I think for me, it was the reverse where those are the highest stakes. And then if I could apply that at work and remain not only unscathed, but at times celebrated for it or getting wins over it, then I can go and do that in my personal life then. I can set different boundaries. I can speak on things with more assertiveness. I can remove myself from certain situations that I was hanging on to for, you know, not the right reasons, etc. So I think, yeah, the I tested my material at work <laughs> instead of vice versa. <laughs> well, and I think for you, as you as you mentioned, it's like I think that in this instance, the stakes were higher and the 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 power dynamic, right? The, what rooms am I saying these things in? Cause I also feel like it's, it might be true that you no longer surround yourself in your personal life with people who just don't get you, don't see you like are, are unsafe. And so you still get thrown into those environments in the workplace. And so you built that muscle there and then it was like more natural to bring it over maybe. Right. Exactly. Like I, this is the place where nobody knows me and where the stakes are highest and I lived. So I can make more room for that for sure. And they do cross over, but again, I'm a Capricorn. So work is going to affect my personal life more than the other way around. <laughs> you are, you are the, the goat. <laughs> mm-hmm. For better or worse. Yeah. So what's yeah. next for you in terms of like, Showing up fully in your career. I uh, I recently came out of a mentorship program where I was mentoring two women of color. And I found an enormous amount of satisfaction from that. More so in the sense of, not more so, mostly because they were women of color. Um, and one of them was way younger than me. One of them was way older than me. So I got both ends of the spectrum. But seeing them step out of their sort of um, filtered approach and all the things that we as women of color grow up with and we hear and all of that and seeing them sort of break out of that because of the conversations that we have had was really satisfying. And it made me feel like, you know, there are ripple effects that can come out of certain things professionally. So I'm pursuing more of that while, um, 
you know, staying within my team and taking care of my team and making sure that everybody acts that way as well. And within that, within my team, I think my main goal for 2024 is going to be making making it so that everybody on my team that is my responsibility shows up that way and is unafraid and kind of walks in like they own the room and has people thinking, who do they think they are and brings their entire self to work. Because I really believe that those, that is how you sort of multiply your impact, if you will. And I, you know, a lot of people are going to say multiply your impact, you know, teaching others how to write or creative directing them. Yes, sure. That's just, you know, the entry fee. But I'd rather show people how to be their full authentic selves and how to make space in their workplaces, whether it's ours or anywhere else, where everybody gets to be a little bit more authentic. And then I think we'll ride that until, you know, capitalism collapses. <laughs> Hopefully soon. <laughs> You're just going to make a little authentic army and they will march out there exactly. in the world. And, and then we the will systems. authentically tear it down. <laughs> I love that. That ripple effect is so real. And I think the more people that are out there role modeling that, it does have that exponential effect. And so I think that is an amazing goal for 2024. Exactly. Yeah, wherever the industry goes, sure, let's let's go with it. I don't need to be the change agent for that, where it goes in like a work style. But if I can leave an impact of people being more authentic and comfortable within themselves, I've done everything I wanted to do. That's a change agent in and of itself. So exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your own experiences, the good, bad, and the ugly. Um, It's been great having you. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very excited that you're doing this. I loved talking about this. And yes, I will be your regular co-host. I t- I accept. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I'll get the contract ready. <laughs> I just like tried to Alex Levy you into a job, I think. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love well, it. Thank you so okay. much. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you. All right. Mwah. We covered so much ground in this episode, but I want to point out a couple of things as we wrap up. One of the things we talked a lot about was how to be a supportive and respected leader by giving your people that same respect. How can you bring them along and be more transparent? The more we trust people with more context and information, the more we have the opportunity to see people step up in really powerful ways that may actually be better than how we would have handled it. So if you're in a position of leadership from a hierarchy standpoint and you have a team, I want you to really take that away. And then I want to drop in the resources two podcast episodes. One is one of my absolute all-time, probably top three favorite podcast episodes. And it's the HBR Women at Work episode called Leading with Authenticity. I love this episode because there are some really great gems in it for how to recognize when you might be experiencing bias, especially for women of color. And honestly, it's just nice to listen to some people talk about some things that you might be like, yep, okay, I I get that. I feel that. I felt that before. And I passed it off as something else. And so 
Um, if you want to listen to this one to understand a little bit more just about what it's like to be a woman in the workplace and a woman of color in the workplace and how to navigate a little bit more about authenticity, I would highly recommend that one. And then the second one is one that actually I was a guest on. And it's the intersection with my uh, friend and fellow entrepreneur, Nancy Harris, where I talk more about how organizations can think about the environment they're creating for their diverse leaders and how they can enable more authenticity. Because what we know is that in order for folks to be authentic at work, the organization needs to create a place where that's not penalized. And so in that episode, I talk a little bit about how we can do that from an organizational standpoint. I hope that many of you are feeling more seen and understood in hearing Natasha's story. And I hope that you can take away from her really bold self-expression and the way that she sorts through, is this mine or is this someone else's? As a lot of permission to do more of that for yourself. Thanks so much for listening to Working Your Way. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out all of our episodes, show notes, additional resources, and more at selfatwork.com forward slash podcasts.